It is a period of civil war. Rebel spaceships striking from a hidden base have won their first victory against the evil Galactic Empire, who, under the command of Darth Vader, rule the galaxy with an iron fist. The Empire, however, is far from defeated. And many young unknown pilots have joined the rebels in the hope they can restore freedom to the galaxy. Hello everyone and welcome to Classic Gaming Today, where we take a look at the gaming experiences of the past through the eyes of the present. I am your host Tony, and today we are going to look at Star Wars Rebel Assault, a full motion video on rails shooter flight and space simulator kind of game developed and published by LucasArts in 1993 for DOS, Macintosh, Sega CD, and the 3DO. But before we get into that, as is customary, we have a little bit of housekeeping. This is episode number four. I am still excited. I am excited about the growth of the community so far. I hope everybody else is as well, because I really do want to build that community. And if anybody has any advice, feedback, would like to talk about the games we've covered, would like to suggest new games to cover, or would like to get your comments read on the show, there are a couple ways you can reach out to me. You can either send me an email at classicgamingtoday at gmail.com, or you could shoot me a note on Twitter with the handle at classicgamingt. I am legitimately interested in continuing to grow and develop this community around the podcast and just talking with people about classic games and classic technology and all that good stuff because, heck, I like it. So, before we get into the meat of the episode, just as we always do, a quick recap on what the anatomy of an episode is. What are you going to hear when you listen to this podcast? Well, we always start by talking about history and the historical context of whatever game we're going to discuss. Then we go into our review section, which is sort of a review, kinda. It's not like we're going to assign a numeric score to everything, but we do take a look at games from a number of different perspectives, including graphics, sound and music, the narrative and story, if the game has one, uh, the playability and controls, as well as the overall feel before we eventually reach a verdict and assign the game one of four potential categories. Those categories being... It has entered into the pantheon of classic gaming. That is the top of the top. These are the things, these are the games that are absolute classics. And it doesn't matter that they may be 30 plus years old. You should still play them today because they are that darn good. So games that are just that darn good are entered into the pantheon of classic gaming. As of this episode, we currently only have one game in the pantheon. That being Lemmings, the very first game that we looked at is episode number one. That is the only game that has reached the Pantheon that we've looked at so far. Then, if you don't quite reach the Pantheon, but you're still a pretty darn good game, you may be a golden oldie. This is a game, or these are the kinds of games where I do recommend you play it. Uh, it's not necessarily the best game, where it might have aged a little bit less gracefully than those games that might end up in the Pantheon, but these are still great games. These are games that you absolutely should try, especially if you have nostalgia for them. Play them again. I mean, they are—they were great then. They're still great. And if you also enjoy the genre and you haven't played it before, you owe it to yourself to give it a try. Moving on beyond the golden oldies, this is where we get to the 
games that we can't really recommend all that much. The first category being the mediocre mention. These are games that probably did not age all that well, or they just weren't all that great to begin with. It's not like you would definitely have a bad time. You could play it. I mean, you might enjoy it. Some of them still have some enjoyable or enjoyable elements to them, but I can't recommend them. And it's not one of those things where I'd be like, oh yeah, go out and play this game. Nah, these are kind of mediocre. And then finally, the very final category that we have is the footnote. Those are the games that I played and went through and, and suffered through, so you don't have to. They may be games that were good in their time, but just are not playable or not really great to play in the year 2022 or whenever you're listening to this podcast. Or they just may have not been great experiences to begin with. You don't have to worry about them. You certainly could play them. I can't control you, nor would I want to, but I would not recommend you to play those games. In any event, we will move on to actually talking about the game of this particular episode, that being Rebel Assault. It is morning at a rebel base on planet Tatooine, where a young pilot is embarking on a crucial training flight. Rebel Assault was a full-motion video on-rails shooter and flight and space simulator developed and published by LucasArts in 1993 for a number of different platforms, primarily DOS, Macintosh, um, as well as Sega CD and 3DO. That's DOS and Macintosh, not DOS, Macintosh. There wasn't some weird Microsoft-Apple hybrid that nobody else was aware of. It was two separate operating systems. Regardless, let's talk a little bit about the history of LucasArts because that was the company that created the game. And I love looking at this kind of stuff and, and learning more about the history of these different companies. So LucasArts wasn't always LucasArts. It was originally founded as the Lucasfilm Games Group way back in 1979. And this is one of the brainchilds of George Lucas, who, of course, is the namesake of LucasArts and Lucasfilm. Now, 1979 was just a couple years after the release of the original Star Wars, and George Lucas had a goal. His goal was to develop interactive experiences and other forms of entertainment that would be outside of cinema. Obviously, he understood movies. He was he had created several movies at the time, Star Wars being by far the biggest, but he wanted to explore experiences outside of the cinema, and that was where he started to think about how can he do that, and he stood up this games division. Now remember, back in 1979, Video games were not quite as pervasive as they are today. I mean, you certainly had some of the console boom happening with Atari and, and those kind of games. You had some arcade games out there, but it wasn't like everybody had a console at home. This was this was a very, very early or at the very early stages of game development. But Lucasfilm began developing a bunch of different titles, even that early on, spanning numerous platforms. A couple of those games from the early Lucasfilm era included Ball Blazer and Rescue on Fractalus, which were both developed for the Atari 5200 system back in the early 80s. Now, at the time, publishing was mainly handled by Atari, Activision, and Epix. So Lucasfilm wasn't really publishing their own games. They were developing stuff, but they weren't actually publishing those titles. Lucasfilm actually wouldn't self-publish a title until Maniac Mansion all the way later in 1986. And just to go on a minor 
tangent here. Maniac Mansion was a significant game just in gaming history, but specifically in adventure gaming history, in that it gave us the SCUM engine, which stands for the script creation utility for Maniac Mansion, which basically became the basis of every single Lucasfilm and LucasArts adventure game from that point on, all the way through the 90s. Absolutely a significant development in the adventure game genre, uh, LucasArts being one of the predominant developers in the adventure game genre, the other pro- prominent developer from the time, of course, being Sierra Online. But Maniac Mansion, which was the first self-published game by LucasArts, a pretty darn big deal in the adventure game genre and also just in computer computer gaming in general. Now, most of the early development, we're going to step back, most of the early development for Lucasfilm was centered on exploring experimental new types of games. I did find this pretty surprising. One of the first graphical interface online role-playing games was actually developed by Lucasfilm. This is something I had no idea about. Lucasfilm was playing around with online RPGs with graphics all the way back in 1986. Now think about that for a second. 1986! That predates the widespread use of the internet by years and years and years. Certainly there were, uh, internet, internet was available, so to speak, in, in governmental institutions and most likely in educational or higher educational institutions, but this was not a public thing. 1986 was way before the internet and the World Wide Web and just network kinds of things in general would be pervasive across the computing landscape. But LucasArts or Lucasfilm was experimenting with this all the way back then. And the specific game they had been working on, and, and the interesting part of this is, you'll see, it kind of evolves. It was called Habitat, which was originally designed for the Commodore 64, and they had an online service called Quantum Link. Now, Habitat made it as far as a beta test, but its bandwidth wasn't really sufficient so, or the bandwidth of the service wasn't really sufficient for the game, so it got shelved. And then over the years, it would continue to be evolved and worked on and sold to different people and just kind of languished out there until eventually the game was licensed to Fujitsu in 1995, which was almost a decade after it was originally developed and experimented from a beta test perspective. And that instance of it would actually finally be received or would finally have a worldwide release. It would finally receive a worldwide uh, release, but under a new title called Worlds Away. And it was just crazy to me to think that something like this was being developed in 1986. And I mentioned that story not because it directly relates to Rebel Assault, but it does show that even as far back as 1986, Lucasfilm was experimenting with new technologies, newer technologies that just weren't really in widespread use. And you'll see as we continue to speak about LucasArts and Lucasfilm that that was pretty much a part of their DNA as they continued to move forward. And we saw that experimentation just a couple minutes ago when we were talking about the scum engine, the script creation utility for Maniac Mansion, which basically made it so that every single adventure game by LucasArts beyond that point would all follow or utilize that same engine, albeit with some enhancements over time, because obviously you want to keep things fresh and keep the technology up to date. But it was it was absolutely the primary engine for all of their graphical adventure games, which is crazy to think about because there were a ton. There were some other innovations and experimentation that LucasArts and Lucasfilm were working on at the time. 
One of the other big ones, which also played a huge role in their adventure games, but also uh, expanded into some of their other titles, was the iMuse music system. And what this was, was a really interesting way of playing music in games. So think about this. In a film, in a film score, you have a soundtrack, and that soundtrack is scored based on the action in the film. And whoever is scoring the music, the composer or, or whomever, kind of knows what's happening in the movie because they can watch the movie and they can time the music that they play or that they compose and that the orchestra plays along with the action that's happening on the screen. They have complete control over it because they're watching the film and they're scoring the music to go along with those actions. Game developers do not generally have that luxury because with gaming, it's an interactive medium. So a player can do pretty much anything the game allows him or her to do at any point in time. Now, some games don't really care. <laughs> you enter a scene and background music plays until you leave the scene and then some other background music plays. And that's fine. A lot of games do that. LucasArts, when they were developing this IMU system, wanted to do something much more interactive. They wanted to feel more like a cinematic score. So what they did was created a system that would have a bass background playing and then would allow the music to change dynamically based on the actions that the player was taking. So basically what that ended up doing was creating the feel that you were in a movie because when you would take an action, the, the background music or the score for the game would actually react to whatever actions you had taken, meaning it basically felt like a personally scored soundtrack for your experience playing the game. This was a revolutionary concept when it was developed. There are a lot of different engines and audio kinds of techniques today that utilize similar kinds of technologies and probably much more advanced than what iMuse was at the time, certainly based on uh, the fact that it's now around 30-ish years after that was developed, if not more so. But iMuse, for when it was released, was a significant improvement in how game audio was delivered to the player. So just one other example of how Lucasfilm was experimenting with a bunch of different technologies that would eventually uh, create a lot more kind of value for their games as time went on. Now, you'll notice that I haven't mentioned Star Wars, other than saying Star Wars, the movie released back in 1977. I haven't talked about Star Wars games, and the, the fact there is that Lucasfilm wouldn't release a Star Wars game title until the early 1990s, and that game title that they released at that point was Super Star Wars on the Super Nintendo Entertainment System, which, by the way, I remember as a kid, I loved the Super Star Wars quote-unquote trilogy on Super Nintendo. It was just a great side-scrolling, run-and-gun kind of game, and it was, it was awesome at the time. I'll probably have to revisit it at some point for this podcast. But the question would be, why? Why was there no Star Wars game created? It was by far the most important intellectual property to Lucasfilm, why wouldn't a Star Wars game get created by the company that actually created Star Wars in the first place? And the funny thing there is that the Star Wars game license wasn't actually held by Lucasfilm Games at the time. All of the publishing rights belonged to Atari, and Atari was the group that released the original Star Wars arcade game back in 1983. Now, this was a vector-based arcade kind of space sim on rails kind of shooter thing that simulated a 
a Death Star run. And uh, for those of you who may be kind of into arcade games and the whole revival with Arcade 1-Up, Arcade 1-Up is a company that releases three-quarter scale replicas of various arcade machines. They, within the last couple of years, actually released a replica of the Star Wars arcade game that originally came out in 1983. So that the publishing rights for Star Wars, for all Star Wars titles, was held by Atari, and ports to various other systems were made by a variety of companies, including Broderbund, which was a fairly large development and publishing company at the time. It wasn't until 1992 that the Star Wars license for games came back to Lucasfilm, and at that point, Lucasfilm also went through a name change. Now the game division for Lucas was renamed to LucasArts, which is the name and the company title that most people refer to when they talk about that particular company. Most of the time, everybody refers to it as LucasArts because that's just the name it was when it became incredibly popular in the gaming industry. Now, LucasArts hadn't been sitting idly by waiting for the Star Wars license to come back and revert to its ownership. They had worked primarily on adventure games. We talked about Maniac Mansion. They also used some of their other intellectual property that they did own the publishing rights to, such as Indiana Jones, where they created Indiana Jones of the Fate of Atlantis. They also created some other adventure games like Loom and The Secret of Monkey Island, among others. Um, and they also actually, interestingly, created a variety of combat vehicle simulation games. So interesting that they both created a lot of adventure games, which is probably what they were most well-known for at that point. But they also did create some combat vehicle simulation games as well. So once the Star Wars license came back to LucasArts, they really wanted to create experiences in the Star Wars universe. That's what ultimately led to that Super Nintendo game, Super Star Wars, back in 1992. Now, great, they've released a Star Wars game finally, but there had still not been a true cinematic Star Wars game ever created. You could argue that, at least for the time, the graphics and the capabilities of the Star Wars arcade machine could sort of kind of be cinematic, I guess. You could say, hey, the Super Nintendo Super Star Wars game, that was pretty darn good. It had all of the iconic themes and things like that, but it really wasn't cinematic. It was very very game-centric. It was very digitized. It didn't feel like you were living a Star Wars adventure. And the reason for that is because there were some pretty significant technology limitations that had existed at the time. In order to create a cinematic adventure, and by cinematic, just to define, I mean things like high-quality graphics and actual true CD audio, or at least real instrument audio and music. And when we talk about Star Wars, you can't talk about music without talking about John Williams' iconic score for Star Wars. There were no games at that point that had utilized real instrument audio. They had all been MIDI-based, meaning musical instrument digital interface, and those were basically synthesized sounds or sampled sounds that mimicked real-life instruments but were not actually real-life instruments. So we didn't really have that, and that's primarily because from a technological perspective, there just wasn't the space to hold all of that data. CD-ROM drives, however, when they were, when they kind of came onto the scene and started to become more pervasive, that then created the possibility to create a much more cinematic experience. And at the time, so this is the early 90s, there were really two major CD-ROM titles that basically sold the technology. 
those two games were Myst and Seventh Guest, both of which are point-and-click puzzle adventure games. Myst being probably the bigger one, I would say, simply because it basically captured all of gaming culture at the time. And you could pretty much talk to anybody and they would know what the heck Myst was. They may not have actually beaten it because, boy, that was actually a semi-tough game to do without a walkthrough. But Myst was pervasive and it sold a ton of CD-ROM drives. And Seventh Guest also sold a ton because both games were were very, very uh, advanced technologically. They had full motion video included, which as you guys probably know by listening to a few episodes now, I love full motion video games, even the bad ones I really enjoy. But the technology was now at a point where you could deliver these more cinematic feeling experiences and actually be able to make it feel like you were experiencing something unique, something a little bit more mature because the technology had finally started to evolve to the point that you could actually do that. And LucasArts decided that they wanted to use this new technology to basically demo what was possible with the technology of CD-ROM, and they wanted to do something in-house. So they started working on what would eventually become Rebel Assault. And there were two requirements that they were given by leadership at the company. One was it had to use CD-ROM technology. So this is the new technology. They wanted to make sure they were jumping in and, and utilizing it as much as they possibly could. And the second requirement was it had to be set in the Star Wars universe. So whatever they were going to do, this demonstration had to both utilize CD-ROMs as well as utilize the Star Wars license. And early on, the developers decided that they wouldn't just recreate the Star Wars story. They didn't want to recreate something that people had already experienced and simply put it into game form. The thought there being that the cutscenes would probably be longer than the actual gameplay because they were really focused on upping the ante as it came to both graphics and sound. So they didn't really have a, a ton of space to work with and still maintain all of the game on a single CD, even though a CD, by comparison to floppy disks before it, were dramatically larger than what a floppy disk could hold space-wise. But the developers did decide that they didn't just want to recreate Star Wars, they wanted to create a fun game that used Star Wars elements, which meant they were going to mess around a little bit with the canon of the Star Wars universe. They weren't necessarily going to follow a single story. They were going to pick elements that worked for the game they wanted to create and for the interactive experience that they wanted to create. Now, this started, like I said, as a demo, but it would eventually evolve into a full game. That full game would be Rebel Assault. Now, there were a number of challenges that the developers faced while trying to create the game. They knew they wanted to create a cinematic experience, but even with the space of CD-ROM drives, CD-ROMs holding 650 megabytes of information compared to floppy disks at the time holding 1.44 megabytes of information. So you're looking at around... 450x or so, 450 times more than what a traditional floppy drive would hold, if not a little bit more. I'm not going to do the math off the top of my head, or at least I tried, but <laughs> probably didn't do it perfectly. But in any event, there were a lot more space. There was a lot more space in CDs, but even with that space, there was no way to really provide true, fast-moving, high-quality graphical experiences without better graphics hardware, and there just wasn't better graphics hardware at the time. It wasn't like 3D acceleration was really a thing at that point. So you didn't have 3D acceleration. You had some some uh, higher quality 2D or two-dimensional kinds of graphics, but 
there was nothing that would have really captured the essence of flying through the Death Star trench. So the developers came up with a unique solution, that being full motion video. Now, in this instance, full motion video, for the most part, doesn't actually refer to real actors acting out scenes. There's a few different styles of full motion video that you can talk about. But really, what full motion video means at its essence is pre-recorded segments, whether that's pre-rendered graphics or acted scenes with real live actors. Basically, it just means these are non-interactive elements. These are things that were pre-recorded that are playing or streaming off of some media that you then have some degree of interaction with, whether that's picking a path or having an overlay that you can control and move around on the screen. So the developers for Rebel Assault decided that because the graphics technology of the time couldn't generate real-time imagery the way they wanted it to, they would create pre-rendered, pre-recorded scenes, and they would stream this full-motion video off of the CD-ROM drive. Because CD-ROMs, or because CDs, could hold so much more space, they could basically hold all of these pre-rendered, pre-recorded scenes, stream them off of the disc, and create the illusion that you were experiencing a high-quality graphical kind of experience albeit the fact that you weren't really rendering those graphics in real time because the computers were not actually powerful enough to do that. How that translated to in the game was you basically had this full motion video playing in the background and you had control over, uh, let's say, a spaceship or you had control over a character and aiming on the screen and the computer would have artificial intelligence enemies that would be overlaid on the video and basically that meant that everything in the background was effectively video, while everything in the foreground were uh, characters or ships or anything like that that you actually could interact with. So you couldn't really interact with the video, but you could interact with the overlaid elements of the game, like those spaceships and fire lasers and all the kinds of stuff that you would normally do in a Star Wars kind of experience. Now, original CD-ROM drives were pretty darn slow. They could only stream data at 150 kilobytes a second. So there's, just for reference, there's around 1,024 kilobytes in a megabyte, and there are 1,024 megabytes in a gigabyte, and you know the way space is today. So you're talking a very, very, very slow transfer kind of speed for the original 1X CD-ROM drives. So you couldn't actually play back full screen, full video, given those CD-ROM limitations. But So what the developers basically had to do was go in and touch up and animate each scene frame by frame in order to create an experience that would create the illusion of full motion video, high quality graphical kinds of things. It was incredibly labor intensive for them to go through and create this experience that would eventually become Rebel Assault and, and give you all of these graphical elements that had never been seen before in computer gaming at the time. Now, CDs, like we were talking about, also allowed for the use of digitized audio. And this was the first time that digitized audio, meaning real live instrument audio, was used for a LucasArts game. And what better experience to use as your first time than the John Williams Star Wars score, which is iconic. I mean, I used that word before, but I can't think of a better word to describe John Williams score for Star Wars. Everybody knows it. It is, it is amazing, and it is absolutely phenomenal. And to play a game with the real music playing in the background as you're flying this ship or you're navigating an asteroid field just feels right. 
And it was just amazing that they were able to do that. Now, the side effect of the fact that technology was more advanced than it was, but not necessarily as advanced as it is, meant that the score, albeit there in its entirety, or at least as much as they would use for the game, was recorded at a very low quality sampling rate. So it didn't sound perfect. It didn't sound pristine and crisp, but it was still Star Wars. It was still that John Williams music, which tons of people, including myself, know and love. Eventually, the game would be completed, and it would be the first CD-ROM game developed by LucasArts. So what started as a demo would eventually become the very first CD-ROM game developed by the company. LucasArts, like we were talking about, was primarily known as an adventure game studio. So the expectations for Rebel Assault were pretty low. They didn't really have high expectations as far as sales would go. And the initial projections were that the game would probably only sell around 15,000 copies. Very, very low expectations in comparison to their adventure game titles. Now, the interesting thing here is that, in fact, people really wanted to experience a full cinematic Star Wars adventure. It would sell 100,000 copies within its first three days of release, which would eventually, over its lifetime, bloom to over 1.5 million copies of the game. So what started as a 15,000 game sale projection morphed over time into 1.5 million copies sold. Critical response? Eh, it was kind of in the middle. Most graphical, uh, or rather most magazines and most press would praise the graphics. They said these graphics were unlike anything that had ever been seen on computers. And that was primarily because of the pre-rendered nature of the video. They were able to, to up the graphical quality dramatically beyond what a real-time rendered kind of solution would be if you were trying to run it on a computer of the time. So tons of people praised the graphics. At the same time, most people criticized the controls. And we will talk about the controls for this game because... We have to. It's uh, it's not a not a great fun story, but we will talk about the controls for this game. So we're going to save that for a few minutes. And almost universally, everybody hated the Sega CD version. So I mentioned before that the game was released on a few different platforms: DOS, Macintosh, the 3DO, and the Sega CD. Almost universally, the Sega CD version was panned by critics and nobody liked it simply because the Sega CD was not that powerful of a console and it really couldn't do justice to any of the graphical capabilities of the game that you were able to see on those more powerful platforms. Regardless of how anyone felt about it, though, Rebel Assault became a landmark title, one that would be used to demonstrate computer systems in the early 90s in storeroom displays, and I actually have a vivid memory of walking into my local Radio Shack at the mall. And I was, I, I mean, it was literally 1993 or whenever it came out. It was like 1992, 1993. And I was walking into Radio Shack. I was around 12 years old at the time. And I remember looking at a computer screen and I saw Star Wars playing on this computer screen and it looked real. I mean, it looked like real Star Wars. And I was just transfixed. I just thought to myself, what is this, what is this thing? What is this experience? How could I possibly enjoy this kind of game? Like, how is this possible? 
How could it even be possible that a computer could create an interactive experience that good looking? It was it was used across multiple computer stores and multiple video game stores to sell computers because of how darn good it looked. And I can testify firsthand that it's absolutely true. At the time, there was nothing else like it. It was it was mesmerizing. And I I have a huge amount of nostalgia for this game because of that. One of the reasons being because of, of that experience of seeing it for the first time in a Radio Shack and thinking, I have to have that game. I have to play that game. I must experience that Star Wars adventure for myself. Rebel Assault would become one of the biggest CD-ROM titles of the time, and along with Mist and Seventh Guest, which we mentioned a little bit ago, would basically single-handedly for those three titles would help sell CD-ROM technology to be a mainstream technology. I often wonder what would happen or what would have happened to CD-ROM technology if some of these landmark titles didn't exist that didn't propel the technology forward early on. We'll never know because obviously it happened, but I do wonder about that sometimes. I'm assuming there would have been some other hot title or some other hot thing that would come out that would force the technology forward, but you never know. Uh, we never have to worry about that because Rebel Assault, Miss Seventh Guest, and other titles like them did come out and created much more focus on that technology as mainstream. There would also eventually be a Rebel Assault 2, which released a couple years after the original, and that game pretty much improved on every aspect of the original. The controls were better, the graphics were better, they actually used real actors. This time, the full motion video sequences of the first title of Rebel Assault, the first one, was primarily pre-rendered graphics. They did have, I think it was pretty much one or two scenes that they captured some of the full motion video from actually the Star Wars film. And there was one scene in particular, I remember, of C-3PO and R2-D2 in the in the spaceship at the beginning of Star Wars Episode Four: A New Hope. They had a brief clip of that film that played in Rebel Assault. But outside of that, I don't believe there was any real full motion video, meaning acted video, in the original Rebel Assault. Rebel Assault 2 would use real live actors and is somewhat famous for having the first newly filmed footage of live actors in the Star Wars universe outside of the the movies. This was the first game to do that. And of course, there would be other games beyond that that would do that as well, such as uh, Jedi Knight Dark Forces 2 would also use real actors recorded and, and full motion video sequences at cutscenes. But Rebel Assault 2 was the first one to do that. But with Rebel Assault, people could finally fulfill their Star Wars fantasies. It may not have been perfect, and we'll talk about that, but it certainly was light years beyond if not parsecs beyond, graphically, what had come before it. Rookie One, this is Commander Farrell. Report in. Rookie One, standing by, Commander. All right, before we begin, let's get something straight. I don't like hot shots. If you want to impress me, show me control and discipline. Without them, you won't stand a chance against the Empire. Do I make myself clear? Uh, yes, sir. Good. Now follow me into the asteroid field. Shoot the ice asteroids, but dodge the rocky ones. (laughs) 
Now we are going to move into the review portion of the episode and talk more about Rebel Assault and how it felt to actually play the game. So just a reminder, Rebel Assault was a full motion video on rails shooter with flight and space sim elements. There was also some uh, third person perspective shooter elements included in the game. And I just want to give a little bit of a deeper dive around what the game was, kind of what was the style of the game and the level design and, and things like that. So this game was basically like we were talking about full motion video pre-rendered sequences that you would be able to control an overlaid ship uh, for most of the levels. And some levels would be more of a first person kind of perspective where you would move around within the video. But there was really from an interactive perspective, you were really limited to how you navigated your ship within the confines of, of the video. It wasn't like you had a full 3D environment to explore. It was really confined to what what was able to be shown on the screen. And then there were some levels that took a little bit of a different approach. So there were a few different level types, and we'll talk about them in a minute. But basically, the goal of the game was to fulfill a series of missions, and there were 15 levels that you would progress through. And it would tell a Star Wars story wouldn't necessarily tell the Star Wars story because they didn't focus on a single element of Star Wars. And as we talk about some of the levels, you'll see that that the game itself was based on a number of different parts of different elements of the Star Wars trilogy. And if you ever try to line up the timing or the timelines for that, you will see that Rebel Assault does not follow the real timeline at all. It kind of jumps around a little bit based on the game they're wanting to, to convey. But it still works from an overall perspective because the goal was to create something fun and not necessarily recreate Star Wars. So the game itself had some limited interactivity. Uh, you could use joystick, mouse to navigate. Um, in the case of other platforms like the 3DO and Sega CD, you could use a control pad. We'll talk more about the controls in a minute. Um, but basically, the way you would navigate the game world is by moving your ship around. You would avoid obstacles that might be there in the video. You would try to target and hit other enemy craft or enemy spaceships. Um, some of the navigation was incredibly difficult just because of the speed that it was moving. But we'll talk a little bit more about that. Um, but basically, it was a very simple kind of game design. It was basically avoiding obstacles and trying to get your targeting reticle over your enemies, pulling your trigger and firing laser beams at them to destroy them before they would destroy you. As I always like to do, I like to take a look at what the box would say, because a lot of times back then your buying decision was based on the box. You wouldn't necessarily have a review in hand. You wouldn't necessarily see the game talked about in a magazine, certainly not on a website. So I just love looking at the back of the box to see exactly how the game was marketed for people who might be browsing the store and think, Hey, that looks like a cool game. So this is what the back of the box says for Rebel Assault. It says, Take control of any of four Star Wars vehicles in a variety of challenging piloting, targeting, and combat scenarios in the first LucasArts game made exclusively for CD-ROM. After learning flight and combat skills, defend Tatooine against Imperial attack. Challenge the menacing walkers on the frigid ice planet of Hoth, and combat the Empire in a series of intense deep space battles. Featuring over a dozen action-packed levels, astonishing 3D graphics, full-screen video from the Star Wars movies, digitized speech and movie sound effects, richly detailed space and surface missions, 
animated cutscenes, soundtrack by John Williams as performed by the London Symphony Orchestra, and an unforgettable arcade experience. So that was how they sold the game, if you walked up and saw the game on the store shelf back in 1993. So let's talk about the game. And just a quick review, we are going to talk about the game from a couple of different perspectives, those being the graphics. How did the game look? And once again, we look at this from the perspective of playing it today, not necessarily when it first came out. We will also look at the sound and music, or more more accurately, listen to the sound and music of the game and see how it sounds. We will discuss the narrative and story to the extent that games have them or that a game has them, and also discuss playability and controls, which leads us to the overall feel of playing the game today, which then allows us to assign a verdict to the game and see if it reaches the hallowed halls of the pantheon of classic gaming. Now, this particular discussion is going to be a tale of two different experiences because I played the game twice just because I wanted to. I wanted to kind of experience what it felt like to play on the computer as well as on the Sega CD. And for reference, I played both of these versions back when I was a kid. So where appropriate or where possible, I will try to compare and contrast my feelings today versus when I played them back when I was around 12 years old. We're going to start by talking about graphics. So the graphics on the computer, graphics on the DOS computer, because I never played it on Macintosh, but on a period specific or a period accurate uh, DOS PC, the graphics at the time were mind boggling. I mean, like I was saying earlier, this was the kind of thing that you've never seen before. Today, uh, it doesn't really hold up all that well, unfortunately. The graphics didn't really age gracefully. Um, Now on PC, passable. You could kind of see what was going on here. The PC version definitely had higher quality graphics and you could see, you could kind of squint your eyes a little bit and tell, oh yeah, when this was released, this was definitely a graphics powerhouse. Today, absolutely not. It does not hold up. Now the Sega CD, that version was horrible. Absolutely horrible graphically. You could see exactly what the critics were saying when they said the Sega CD just wasn't powerful enough to do any sort of justice to this game. A lot of the times, a lot of the missions where in the PC version, you would see the details on or in an environment, like you could see the craggy rocks on a cavern or in a tunnel that you were driving or flying through. You can kind of see some of those details, even though today it was awfully pixely because the graphics just were not rendered in high resolution. On the Sega CD, you lose all of that detail. Absolutely horrible graphics on the Sega CD. And I am an easy grader. I very rarely say something looks absolutely atrocious. The Sega CD graphics were absolutely atrocious. You could not make out the landscape. There were many missions where you were basically flying and all you would see is a single color rather than seeing gradients of color and different rocks and and crags and things like that on a canyon wall. All you would see is the color yellow. That's honestly how bad it was. You could you could not make out any sort of details in the environment. Now, there is something I do want to talk about graphics-wise that was specific to the PC version, and that is when you had, you had a bunch of options, as you would expect from a PC title. One of the interesting ones that I didn't recognize was there, and I honestly don't remember playing with at all when I played it as a kid, was the ability to select the frame rate for the full motion video that was playing. So you could actually set the frame rate lower or higher. 
ostensibly to better allow your computer and the the hardware within your computer to keep up or to be able to play the the video files more effectively, but it actually had a side effect as it relates to the controls. So just keep that in mind. There is the ability on the PC to change the frame rate of the full motion video sequences. We're going to talk about that when we get to the controls section. So I mentioned that just because it is a graphical element. It's part of the graphics discussion, but it really doesn't come into play too much until we get to the controls section. Though I will say when you crank up the frame rate on the full motion video setting on the PC version, it looks a whole heck of a lot better. It feels a lot better. Like it is super smooth. Uh, so it actually does improve the overall feel of the game from a visual perspective to play at a higher frame rate. It does not help the controls. And I'll tell talking about that in a little bit. So moving on to sound and music, the sound effects and music were exactly what you would expect from a star Wars experience. It was John Williams score it was all of the traditional laser effects that you would expect to hear. It was awesome. It definitely felt like you were in a Star Wars movie, except the quality, because once again, to deliver all of the cinematic kind of experience, the technology was mostly there, but still had to have some concessions. The quality of the audio was dramatically lower than what you would want to hear. And in reality, the, the, refresh rate or the sampling rate was i think 11 kilohertz if i'm not mistaken or 11 hertz uh, 11,000 i'm sorry 11,000 hertz um, so sorry i was uh mixing up some of my prefixes in any event around 11,000 hertz now let me let me give you a comparison this podcast and the way i record this podcast i record 44,100 hertz as my refresh rate or my my uh, recording sampling rate for the podcast. So it is not as high as you possibly can go, but it's a pretty good mix of having relatively clear audio and keeping the overall overall size down, especially because most of what I'm doing is just spoken word. You don't really need a whole heck of a higher sampling rate than that. But let's say I recorded it the way that Rebel Assault portrayed all of their sounds. If I did that, the audio would sound like this. So you can see immediately that the sound quality is dramatically lower than what you would have otherwise. This is how the entire game sounded, this quality. If not a little bit lower quality because it felt like there was more compression. I am not going to subject your ears to any more of that, but suffice it to say, the sound, the sounds were right, the sound quality was not. And it definitely... It felt like you were playing a Star Wars experience because of the audio, but it also reminded you that you were playing a subpar Star Wars experience because of the audio as well. The quality just was not fully there yet. So moving on to the narrative and story, what more can I say except it's Star Wars. The game intermixes elements of the original Star Wars trilogy, which ultimately results in the destruction of the Death Star. And it does take a couple of minor detours here and there into timelines and sequences that just don't really make sense, given the the canon of Star Wars. But honestly, it works. I mean, they took some liberties with the story. And the film characters that you would expect to see, like Luke Skywalker, Leia, and Han Solo, they're nowhere to be found. This is very much a retelling of bits and pieces of the Star Wars story where it basically casts you as a rookie pilot that basically takes Luke's position 
and eventually destroys the Death Star. Sorry for the spoiler, but um, it, it, that's kind of how the story plays out. So you you take that. You are the the main character, obviously, in the story. You take that Luke role, and you eventually become the hero. Now, the game itself moved pretty briskly. It did feel, from a story perspective, from a narrative standpoint, you could feel like you were starring in your own Star Wars movie. It was relatively short, so it wasn't a really long game, other than some very, very, very difficult levels, which we'll talk about in a second. Um, now, the game itself, and we mentioned this, was split up over 15 levels in most versions of the game, the exception being the Sega CD version, which, for some reason, dropped one of the levels, and I can't find why. I don't know if that was a, a limitation of the console or somebody messed up or what, but I don't understand why everything else was there, albeit at a much lower quality, but for whatever reason, there was a single level missing from the Sega CD version of the game. I honestly don't know why that would be. But narratively speaking, the story, it was Star Wars, and it felt like Star Wars, and it felt like you were playing a Star Wars experience. So from that perspective, I think they hit the mark. Now, the big one, the big thing that I have the most issue with, and we have some issues with the graphics, and we have some issues with the audio quality. The biggest issue from my standpoint is the playability, the actual controls of the game. Now, I tried multiple ways to play this game. I played on a period-specific or a period-accurate PC with an actual game port-based joystick. I tried using a mouse. I tried playing on DOSBox with a mouse and with a modern joystick. And I played the Sega CD using a Sega gamepad. Let me tell you, the PC version, no matter what I did, was god-awful. It was the controls were horrible. The sensitivity was all over the map. It was it was nothing like I remembered it. I remember playing this game as a kid, and I remember just having tons of fun with it and maneuvering around. I don't know if my my skill has decreased or my my reactions or my reflexes have gotten worse or what, but I could not find the right combination of sensitivity to allow me and control to allow me to actually play the PC version and have it be what I would call fun. <laughs> it just wasn't. It, it was, it was, uh, the closest I got was messing around with the full motion video frame rate counter. The thing I had mentioned earlier from the graphics section. So as you switch, as you change that frame rate, it affects the sensitivity of your controls because the slower the movie, the more, uh, control you have or the more time you have to make some movements from a control perspective. So one of the things that you can actually do to make the game a little bit easier, or a little bit easier to control at least, is to drop the frame rate down. If you drop the video frame rate down, it actually allows you to control a little bit more accurately or at least have a little bit more opportunity for control, which in some of the levels you will need because when you play the game at full frame rate, if you play the full motion video at full frame rate, it feels like you're playing a Star Wars movie. Like it, the, the smoothness of the video and the smoothness of the experience gets dramatically better. The controls are so sensitive that it's almost impossible to play the entire game at full frame rate. At least it was for me. I, I did play a good portion of the game at full frame rate, and in doing so... I bashed my head against the wall 
numerous times just trying to get past certain levels. One of the big ones that that affected me early on, I believe it was level three, which is a a level where you have to navigate through a canyon and follow a kind of like your your trainer or pilot kind of person. You follow them through a canyon. It is a very tricky level with a lot of different obstacles that you have to dodge up and down and left and right and everything. And you take a ton of damage if you collide with the side of a video. So the way it works, we were talking about this pre-rendered video is streaming off of the disc and you have to control your ship and maneuver around. Well, the game has logic built in so that when you're maneuvering your overlaid ship, if the overlay gets too close to either an obstacle on the video or the edge of the screen, if there's an obstacle there like a wall or a rock or something like that, you will take damage. And the amount of damage you take, especially on normal difficulty, I'm assuming on hard difficulty, it's even worse, but I didn't put myself through that torture. But on normal difficulty, you take a ton of damage. You can only get hit a few times before you just totally die. And then you have to restart and you only have a certain number of lives and all that kind of stuff. It's uh, it's definitely difficult. And in some levels, it is even harder. Some levels are set in space and it makes it a little bit easier to at least maneuver in the environment. But then you also have space combat, which can also be an absolute bear as well. So basically, the PC version and the controls, I I can't even say, I can't even explain and express how really, really bad they were. Don't even get me started on moving around with a mouse. It, it's... Uh, you can't. I mean, you can, but why would you? Why would you want to? The only way to play this game on PC is with a joystick. And even then, it is just not a fun experience. Now, interesting for me is that playing it on the Sega CD, which is absolutely the worst version of Rebel Assault, was surprisingly fun. The controls were a lot more forgiving using the gamepad. It felt much better to play. It was significantly easier, even on normal difficulty, it was significantly easier to play. I'm assuming that's because the combination of frame rate plus the limitation of the gamepad as far as how you can move it around, being that it was more of a digital kind of movement as opposed to an analog movement, made it made it easier to control, I guess. The gameplay wasn't nearly as smooth as what you would see on the PC. So absolutely, it was not the smoothest of experiences, but it was more fun. It it felt like a funner experience on Sega CD. It was much more brisk because I didn't die nearly as many times on the levels, so it felt like I was actually moving along like a a Star Wars movie would. Um, So I'm really conflicted because the Sega CD looked like a Jackson Pollock painting that had very little, had less detail. Like if Jackson Pollock just threw three colors at a canvas and was just like, hey, look, art, that's exactly what the Sega CD looked like. But the controls felt okay. I mean, they were not great, certainly not great in comparison to almost anything else that you would think about. But in comparison to the PC version, the Sega CD felt okay. It felt okay to play. The PC version, like I said, doesn't matter whether it was DOSBox emulated or, or actual hardware, joystick or mouse, it was just bad. I uh, I don't, I had no, no luck with it. I did eventually persevere, but boy, did it take me a while. So overall, how did it feel to play this game? At times, you could feel the Star Wars, you could feel like you're in a Star Wars movie, by, beyond, beyond doubt, 
you absolutely could have that feeling. And I had that feeling multiple times as I played the game. Other times, it was incredibly frustrating. It was just, it was just a very frustrating experience. And that ultimately became more of the rule rather than the exception. I did mention a little bit that there were 15 levels in the in the game, at least in the PC version of the game. And there were multiple styles embedded throughout the game as you would play it. There were a few levels that were based on overhead views of your vehicle where you would kind of navigate and see your overhead bird's eye view and, and try to shoot things from that perspective. There were also a number of levels where you were in the third person in space so you could see your ship on the screen in full and you would be able to navigate your ship around asteroid fields or, or wherever you were going. There was also some levels where you were in the first person view in space and flying around. So with those things, you were actually in your cockpit and you were maneuvering around in the space kind of environment or in whatever environment. And then there were there were other levels or at least one level where it was effectively a third person shooter. This level, uh, I remember when I was a kid. I actually really liked that level. I thought, boy, it, it looks so real shooting the stormtroopers and they they move around. It almost feels like they were moving around and animated like a like a movie. And it probably was like a digitized video clip of a stormtrooper falling whenever you would shoot them, or at least a semi-digitized video clip. So it looked okay, but boy, the controls in the third person shooter level were were just not good. It, it was hard. It was really hard to control, really hard to move the cursor over to the right spot on the uh, on the PC version because it was analog moving around with the joystick. It was um, it was difficult to to aim. It wasn't horrible, I guess, but it was not the easiest thing. The Sega CD actually made it easier because there were only certain parts of the screen or certain areas of the screen you'd eventually be able to hit because it was more of the click the click the control pad and it moves very specifically to certain areas. It was a little bit easier to control on the Sega CD, but still was not a great level. I, I definitely died a few times on that level on the Sega CD version, which is one of those few levels that actually had some deaths there. Most of the Sega CD versions of the levels I was able to breeze through. PC, like I said, was another story. Those controls just, just really hurt and really made it very difficult to continue to go through the game. But... I will say, generally speaking, most levels were okay. They were not they were not great, but they were doable. There was one level in this entire game that I have to talk about specifically, and I don't often do this, but sometimes there are levels or pieces of a game where I just have to focus on. And the level of this game that absolutely destroyed me at my core, in my soul, was the level called Tie Attack. It was around level 12 in the game. It was outstandingly difficult. It didn't matter what version you were playing. It was outstandingly difficult. And the the main purpose of this particular level is you're first person, you're in a first person perspective, you're in your cockpit, and you have to withstand a ton of TIE fighter attacks, a ton of TIE fighters coming at you from all different directions, moving super fast. And the way that the game works, if you keep and kill a TIE fighter, or you kill an enemy spaceship before it passes you, you minimize your damage. So picture you're in a dogfight with a TIE fighter. TIE fighter is right in front of you. 
It may be shooting you and it may hit you a couple times and you might take minimal damage if it does that. But as long as you shoot the TIE fighter before it goes off the screen, before it goes past you, you've effectively minimized the damage that you could possibly take from that enemy. If you let the TIE fighter get past you, meaning you miss your shots and it flies past you, you take a ton of damage. And then when you have a level where they're throwing three TIE fighters, if not more, at you at one time, all moving at different speeds, all moving from different directions, and the controls which fight you every single step of the way, that is a recipe for something that just makes you want to scream and pull your hair out. That is, it is the worst level in the game to try to get past. I I like the concept of the level. A gigantic space battle against TIE Fighters, that would make tons of sense. They did it better in the X-Wing and TIE Fighter and X-Wing versus TIE Fighter series, which obviously some came out around the same time as Rebel Assault, some a little bit after. But when they have a real combat, real space combat kind of game, LucasArts knows how to make a space combat game. They know how to make it well. Rebel Assault was not that game. And the TIE attack level was by far the worst level in the game. And it was just, it was just irritating too. So at that point, you're in that level, you have a, a wing woman who's with you and all she keeps saying, and you will play this level multiple times over and over and over again. So you get to hear her say this multiple times. She would eventually say things like, um, I've got him, you know, like, like, here, don't worry about it. I've got him. You know what? No, she didn't. She didn't have him because every single time he would shoot you or, or me in this case, it didn't matter what she said. She, these pilots, your, your pilot AI people had to be the worst pilots in history because they would constantly say, Hey, I got him," And then they would not. And then eventually in this level, you get to a point where one of your pilot friends has three TIE fighters on their tail and you have a very limited opportunity to shoot those three TIE fighters and save him. If you don't save him, the whole level resets and you have to do it all the way over from the beginning. If you do save him, you have to kill another 40 ish TIE fighters after that. It's, it's just a ridiculous bear of a level that, that just made me so frustrated to try to fight it. It was just, it was the worst level in the game it, by far and almost single-handedly led to most of my lack of enjoyment with the title because despite that level and despite all of the other failings we've talked about, the game was fun, I, th I think. I think it was fun. I don't know. This is a tough one because I have a lot of nostalgia for this game. So I'm trying to divorce myself from the nostalgia and look at it purely from the perspective of somebody playing it today. And if I do that, if I look at it purely from the perspective of somebody playing it today, it was not good. It's not a great game. It's an important game historically. And the nostalgia, nostalgia is a really powerful drug. And if I use that nostalgia, I can certainly, I can certainly still feel it. I can feel the nostalgia that I felt for it way back when I played it as a kid. But, man, it fought me. It fought me a lot of the way. The Sega CD version, surprisingly, was more fun to play than the computer version. But it just looked awful. It was offensive to look at. It was that bad. It was just really bad. Look it up on YouTube if you guys want. It is just really, really bad. The controls, though, were much easier, much more forgiving than what you would see on the computer version. Now, I'm not sure about this. 
because I don't have a 3DO. I've never owned a 3DO. I want a 3DO. That's one of my holy grail game systems. But I, at this point, I do not have a, a 3DO system. It appears as though the 3DO version of Rebel Assault might be the best version of the game. And the reason I say that is because it combines the high quality or higher quality graphics of the PC version with the controls of the Sega CD version, meaning you're using a gamepad to control it. So I feel like the 3DO version would be the best version of the game. It feels odd to me to suggest that playing a pseudo space flight sim kind of game with a gamepad would feel better than playing it with a computer joystick. But that's the world we're living in with Rebel Assault. It just, the joystick did not feel good. I mean, it felt okay. It was just really, really sensitive. Um, I don't have the 3DO version to compare. This is purely conjecture on my part. It just, it, it just looks like it might be the best one. Uh, I would love to try it out one day to confirm or, or figure out if I'm actually right in that assertion. But the versions I played, PC and Sega CD, both for different reasons, left something to be desired. The 1993 me loved this game. The 2022 me, uh, I gotta, I gotta say, it's not great. It is, I'm still going to give it a mediocre mention. So it is absolutely not part of the pantheon of classic gaming. It is not a golden oldie. It's probably, for me, it's a mediocre mention. The nostalgia, the nostalgia still sticks with me a bit. And I know I'm trying not to let it cloud my judgment. Even beyond the nostalgia, there were some redeeming qualities to the experience. The historical impact of the game cannot be denied. But I have to be honest with you. You shouldn't play this game. Do not go out and play this game. It is, it is not a good game to play. But at the same time, you shouldn't forget about the game. It was important. It was the first cinematic Star Wars experience available anywhere. It was the first CD-ROM game that LucasArts made exclusively on CD-ROM. It was the first game that used the actual digitized version of the Star Wars score. It's an important game. There are tons of Star Wars games that came after that were able to, to build on this and to create even better experiences. This game did not give you a good experience overall, but it was still an important game in history. It should not be forgotten. You just shouldn't play it today. It's just, I wouldn't do it unless you really wanted to. If you really want to do it, Go for it, but I cannot recommend you play this game in 2022. That was our episode on Rebel Assault. I hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed creating it. Uh, if you do want to provide some feedback or comments, either talk about the game itself or give me some suggestions for other games, there are a couple ways you can reach out to me. 
I do have a Twitter handle. It's at Classic Gaming T. I also have an email address, which is ClassicGamingToday at gmail.com. Feel free to shoot me a note and talk about whatever you want to as it relates to Classic Gaming or otherwise. I am definitely continuing to focus and I would love to continue to build this community and have those discussions with people who love talking about Classic Gaming and the technologies that surround it. So please feel free to to reach out and let me know what you think. As well, regardless of whatever podcast engine you're listening to this on, I would love if you would uh, write a review or, or let me know how I'm doing. This is not about bolstering star counts. This is simply about trying to figure out what is the best way we can continue to evolve the podcast to be the best possible podcast it can. It's not about star counts. Feel free to review it in whatever way you think is fair. I am just legitimately interested in hearing what you think. Now, next episode, we are going to be shifting gears a little bit. We're going to focus on a golf arcade game called Neo Turf Masters, which was originally released for the Neo Geo arcade system. So if you have any particular interest in that game or you want to talk to me about that game, please reach out. Let me know. I would love to hear from you. So that is pretty much it for today. We'll be back again in around a week or so with our next episode. Until then, remember, sometimes the games of the past are just as good, if not better, than the games of today. Goodbye, everyone. <laughs>